What's this story about? Just in your heart, you've heard this story before. Did any of you open the Bible? But maybe there's somebody here who hasn't heard this story. Oh my gosh, have I got a treat for you. This is a great story. But something tells me that most of you opened the Bible and went feeding the 5,000. I got it. What's it mean? Like deep in your heart. I want you to think about that before I start talking, because I hope to add to your cultural understanding, and I hope that you have an enjoyable half hour thinking about this um, passage, and I hope to, you know, to add to our understanding of this story, but I certainly don't want to take away what this story already means. And I bet that if you read this before you had an opportunity to journal in the morning, that the Lord would bring to you really important things that you've learned about this story before that maybe are hard to remember to put into practice on a daily basis. So I just kind of want to pause before I say anything else and just in your heart, what does the feeding of the 5,000 mean? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? This is a story, if we look at it from a literary perspective as we're reading Luke as a, as a work of literature, which again, it is certainly much more than that, but it is not less than that. Luke uh, constructed his book in a way that had order and understanding and wanted us to read it like it is. And, and if we look at, at um, this story for, through literary terms, well, this is a story that explains Peter's answer to Herod's question. Are you there in, uh, in Luke 9? Man, I hope you are. And last week, we kind of just barely spent a minute uh, talking about the end of, uh, so Jesus sent out the 12 apostles last week, and today we're going to have them, uh, hear them come back. But in, uh, seven, in verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets had risen. And Herod, uh, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? You know, he's a bad guy. If he goes, I thought I beheaded that guy. What's the problem? That's not a sign of a good person or a good leader. Um, but, uh, but this is a question that really each gospel asks, asks us in the center of the gospel in kind of a different way. In, in Luke's gospel, the core question is put on Herod's lips. Who is this Jesus. And then uh, next week, we'll talk about Peter's answer to that. So skip past the, the story we're looking at today down to verse 18. And it says, now it happened that he was uh, praying alone. This is Jesus. And the disciples were with him. Oh, dude, how, how fun is that going to be to talk about what it means that you're praying alone with Jesus? Isn't that, isn't that cool? Next week, I promise. Um, uh, the disciples were with him and he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others. Oh, that's really interesting. Both uh, Elijah is mentioned early, before this passage and Elijah is mentioned after this passage. I just put that in your little pocket and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, they said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Is this not beautiful? That the question that is on the lips of the evil dictator is answered by the, uh, by the mere fisherman at the feet of Jesus. He knows something that even the seat of power does not know. Luke has Herod asking this question, Peter answering this question, and in the middle, 
we have this story of explanation. Who is it that Jesus is? The Galilean springtime is going great. You remember that's what a lot of theologians will refer to the first part of Jesus' ministry. He's up in Galilee. Uh, you know, he's only been tried to, it, people have only tried to murder him a couple of times. It's gone pretty well. Uh, there's been lots of miracles. There's been lots of just wonderful crowds gathering. It's been going very well. And then Herod has this ominous question. All of a sudden, it's like this foreshadowing that maybe it's going to get tougher pretty quick. And again, this is a question that, that we talk about a lot around here. In fact, I, the core question of your whole life is, who is Jesus? And in the Gospels, it gets asked a lot. It gets asked as the seas calm down and the disciples are terrified and in awe and fear. And they go, who is this that even the, the winds and the seas obey him? It's asked by self-righteous Pharisees. When Jesus, the man gets lowered through the, the roof and, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And all of the self-righteous people who think they know how sins are forgiven, and it certainly doesn't have to do with Galilean carpenters, they say, who is this who even claims to be able to forgive sin? It happens in Jesus' hometown. We know his brothers and sisters. We know his mom. They're here with us. Who does this guy think he is? And now, maybe out of anger or maybe out of fear, but it's being asked by Herod. And Peter gives the answer, well, Jesus is the Christ. Man, what masterful storytelling. What a, what a great storyteller Luke is. Luke doesn't just want to tell you that Jesus is the Christ. He wants to show you that Jesus is the Christ. Who is this? Well, let me tell you a story. We were out on a hillside in Bethsaida which Bethsaida is right next to absolutely nothing. We were trying to go for a break and ended up in a crowd of thousands of people. And there we were with no food. And this is how I became convinced that Jesus is the Christ. You know, maybe this is why this passage is so um, important to the gospel writers. Any reasonable person would read the Gospels, and understand who Jesus is. The answer to the question is clear as you read the Gospels. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. It couldn't be clearer, which is really why I don't know very many people who attack Jesus to say that Christianity is false. Rather, you have to attack the Scriptures. You have to say, well, yeah, if the scriptures were true, Jesus would obviously be God. But I just don't believe that these stories really happened. Which is one of the reasons stories like this are so important to us. This arrives in all four Gospels with a little different details. As Peter is discipling Mark, and we have the first Gospel written, the Gospel of Mark, from Peter's perspective, this is a story that Mark wants Peter to or that Peter wants Mark to write down. And then there's oral tradition that's happening around the time, and, and, and it's landing in, in Paul and Luke's camp, and they're, they're taking Mark's details, and not verbatim, it's not copy and paste. When I, I'm a teacher, when I see that a kid copy and pasted, I know he doesn't know. But when I see that he's used a source, and then it's been filtered through him, and it's come out looking very similar with all of the major parts there, but through his perspective, I know that it's true. You have 
Luke and Matthew telling the story slightly differently, but, but still with all of the major details there, and then even John, who writes decades later. And in fact, in John, this story is so profound, it is, it is very much a turning point in the Gospel of John. It's the point in John's Gospel, this is the point where, where the Galilean springtime, the, all of the good stuff of drawing crowds and miracles and all of that takes a sharp turn. This is the event that sparks a confrontation where the Pharisees demand that Jesus prove that he is the Messiah by producing bread. Let that sink in. He just fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. And, and um, I stole that line. I ain't come up with that, but it's good. Just every time you pass the Lunchable aisle, be like 5,000 men and their families. That's pretty amazing. Um, Jesus has just... Uh, performed this great miracle of bread, and then the Pharisees come to him and go, hey, give us bread so we know that you're the Messiah. And John points to this and gives this argument between Jesus and the Pharisees to the point where at the end of it, Jesus ends up saying, look, I am the bread of life. Partake of me and live eternally. Eat my body, drink my blood. And everybody goes, ah, we're out. That's too much. This is not just one of the miracle stories of Jesus. This is pivotal in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the answer to who is Jesus. Remember, Luke is a book that's presenting Jesus as both the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the whole world. So that's the literary context. This is also a story with great Old Testament context. Man, I wish you were all here on Wednesday night. Michael led a Bible study on Wednesday night, did a great job walking us through the, the sending out of the 12, the apostles, and did an, did an excellent job just reminding us that there are so many uh, like echoes and, and, and foreshadows back to the time of Elijah and Elisha and to the time of Moses and the Exodus when we look at the life and times of Jesus and especially in the book of Luke where Luke is always using these Old Testament stories as background. We make that connection to Moses and the Exodus, Elijah and Elisha and the ministry of Jesus. These were three times where God is doing, this is where the bulk of the miracle stories in the Bible are. And these are times of great transition in, in uh, the life of God and his people. There are parallels to the way Jesus sends out the 12, imparting ministry to them like Elijah passed on ministry to Elijah, like Moses passes on leadership to Joshua. We got a chance to look at all that on Wednesday night, but Luke is going to continue with this Old Testament illusion in our passage today. And if you were a first century reader, you wouldn't be able to get away from it. It would be very, very obvious. Why would Luke be referring to these Old Testament stories in particular? Well, Moses and Joshua is a time of establishing everything. It's establishing the kingdom of Israel. It is saying these are the rules that our culture is going to live by. This is where we're going to live. This is how we're going to live. This is what our laws will be like. This is what our culture will be like. Moses brought all of that down from Mount Sinai. It was, was testified by the, by the miracles of the Exodus. And in Elisha and Elijah, there was a time of great 
idolatry in Israel. They had moved away from the covenant uh, of Moses. And it was a great time of call back. Hey, guys, remember, we're Yahweh's people. Let's start living like it. Let's reject all of these idols and let's come back to our first love. This was the message of Elisha and Elijah. You remember Ahab, the evil king. And that's like the uh, Ahab and Jezebel and fire and the prophets of Baal and all of that. Just a time of great idolatry. And these are connected. There are miracle, there's a message and a bunch of miracles that testify to that message in the time of Moses and the Exodus. There's a message, a call back to God and miracles to attest to that message in the time of Elijah and Elisha. And Luke wants you to think about how that's similar to this new covenant message of Jesus and the miracles that attest to that. These are transitional times. And the message that Moses and then Elijah brings are vital to the relationship um, between God and his people. And the miracles always authenticated the message. Could you just remember that forever? That's just how you remember what the purpose of miracles is in the scriptures. Miracles are to authenticate the message. Jesus is saying things and you go, well, why would we believe him? Well, 5,000 people just had a meal. Well, there's an empty tomb. Well, the blind can see and demons run and hide. That's how we know that the message of Jesus is true. So the miracles authenticate the message. And in both of those times, in Moses' time and Elijah's time, one of the miracles that was most revered had the most to say about the uh, authentic nature of the, the veracity of the message of these prophets was the provision of bread. Would you send your mind back to the flannel graph in Sunday school? And remember the story in 1 Kings 17 where Elijah uh, has the miracle of the bread and the oil with this Gentile widow way up in Sidon. The miracle was done on Gentile turf. Remember, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, but the Messiah of the whole world. It was similar to the feeding of the 5,000 and that uh, it wasn't, hey, boom, now there's enough oil and enough uh, flour forever, but it's, hey, the next morning, there's plenty. The next morning, there's plenty. Reach in the bag, one more Lunchable. <laughs> Reach in the bag, one more Lunchable. Remember the story in 2 Kings 4.44 that has a lot to do with the background of our story today. Elisha feeds 100 men and probably more miraculously. And this is um, the only other time in scripture in the the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, where people are put in groups of 50. So if you had memorized this story forever, oh, Elisha put these people in groups of 50 and then gave them this miraculous feeding of bread. And then you read the story from Luke saying, Jesus said, put them in groups of 50. You'd go, ah, I know what this is about. The big idea is that the ministry of Jesus and the apostles is another one of these times of great transition. This, again, is a brand new message, a brand new covenant between God and the people. And the veracity of this, marriage, of this message is, is going to be testified to by the provision of a miraculous meal. And this is one of the big ideas. If you haven't been paying attention, come back with me now. Manna. Remember Moses. Delivered bread. Again, can't save it. It's enough for today. It'll be enough for tomorrow. Um, but manna was never the point. The point was not manna. 
The point was God's provision. You with me? In the story of Elijah and the daily provision of flour, was flour the point? Was this a story about how important flour is? No. God's provision was the point. These were physical realities, miraculous realities, but physical realities that pointed us to a deeper spiritual truth. Hey, if you can trust God for daily provision, well, you can trust God for eternal provision. If you can trust God for, for physical needs, then certainly you can trust Him with your soul. So, with all that as context, what's the story about? Well, first, this is a story about the ups and downs of walking with Jesus on mission. We talked last week about while these men were given particular spiritual gifts. They were given the power uh, to heal and authority over demons and sent out to use those gifts. In Christ, you and I have spiritual gifts as well. God is sending us on mission. We talked last week that God has called exactly zero people to the mission of sitting around. But rather, he has called us all to be on the mission field every day, that this would be not only something that is available to us, but something that is our primary identity, that we would be those that take the good news to the world, and that he has given us spiritual gifts that we will need in going. Well, as these men went, it was a successful mission. I don't know if you've ever had a successful day of ministry, but there is nothing as good as that in the entire world. I'm standing here today because I got to lead some junior hire whose name I can't remember to the Lord when I was 20 years old, and I was like, oh, I got to do that the rest of my life. That's the greatest thing you can ever do. It's wonderful. And think about the ride that these 12 apostles were on, left their homes you know, traveling with Jesus, all of this, they get sent out with great power and authority with this great message of the kingdom of God and they return with great stories. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip where you just like debrief in the evenings, but it's an amazing thing. Sometimes those debriefing times are like, well, nobody yelled at me today. And you're like, all right, way to go. Maybe you weren't as big a jerk as you were yesterday. Um, but other times you go, oh my gosh, I got to lead somebody to the Lord. Or, oh my gosh, I got to pray with somebody and they felt so much better after and there was comfort and I felt God use me. And this is the most amazing thing. They come back with stories of demons fleeing. Can you imagine like the youth pastor in me always sees the 12 as a youth group, you know? And I, I wonder if them sitting around, they're like, when you cast out demons, what did you do? And one of them's like, I know, I didn't know what to do. I just put my hand up. And the other's like, oh, I did a little dance. Or I didn't want to do anything with my hand, so I just went demon go. I mean, who knows? God's the one doing it. Who knows what they're talking about? But they're like comparing notes and enjoying this really great time of ministry. And then Jesus goes, let's go out to that barren town out by Bethsaida and let's just work it all out. Let's just talk about it. And then they go out there and just right away, they're in the middle of something. They have no idea how they're going to handle it. And if that ain't ministry... And if that ain't life, that you have a mountaintop and you go, man, I might be the greatest at this ever. And then the next day you go, man, here I am again in a place where I have no idea what to do. By the way, let's not spend too much time criticizing the disciples. You got to actually be on mission with Jesus to have days like that. You have to actually be out there doing it. If you go, I've never had any frustration in ministry, that's because you've never ministered. Get with it. 
<laughs> Get on mission. I, I remember just one youth pastor story. I think I was all of 22 years old. Uh, was in the middle of my first New Testament survey class, so I was totally prepared. Um, and, and I took a group of my first junior high ministry job ever. I took a group of kids down to Mexico for the day. I think, Mom, you came with me, didn't you? And we had the greatest day of ministry. We went with a group called Spectrum Ministries. They have a fantastic ministry. It's great for, for youth groups because you don't have to do anything. You, know, you just have to like carry this box, do this, a lot of physical labor, but you're not the point person. And it's just a beautiful ministry. Like They feed, they clothe. It's just everything Jesus wants us doing. It was absolutely amazing. So we come back across the border. That was, we were in Tijuana. We come back across the border, and I didn't even think of it, but I had little Perla with me, and Perla was from Guatemala. She had been in America. Her English is better than mine, and you, you, know, you wouldn't think about that she's a foreign citizen, um, but she was, and so we got across the border, and they said, hey, anybody in here uh, not an American citizen? And little per Perla goes, yeah, me, and I was like, what on earth? Ah, okay, what does this mean? And so they said, well, do you have, uh, you know, your green card or whatever? And her parents had given, given me something at the beginning of the day in a Ziploc bag. So I thought, maybe that's what this is for. So I handed it to him. The guy looks at me. He, 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 he's, he looks down. He looks at me. He looks down. He looks at me. He goes, sir, do you know it's a federal offense to make a copy of a federal document? And I said, no, I did not know that, that was a, dude, I, is there a jail or something I should go to? You know, I don't know. So they pulled all the stuff out of the van. You've probably had stories like this. Just pulled the whole thing apart. Poor little Perla. There's a picture of Bill Clinton on the wall. They're like, do you know who this is? And she's like, I don't know. Yet. She, of course she knows who the president was. She just was so, just verklempt, I think is the word, just stressed out, you know? And, um, and I just was thinking about that this week as I was reading the story. I, that's exactly what's going on with these disciples, is you have this wonderful day of ministry. You really feel God use you. And then the next day can be just very difficult. The next moment you can realize, man, it was God that did all that stuff. I'm actually a joker who has no idea what he's doing. These ups and downs, these times of really seeing God at work and times of not knowing what God's plan is, those are not associated with a lack of faith. That's normative in the life of somebody on mission for Jesus. These ups and downs are normal for those on mission. If we could, again, turn to the ministries of Moses and Elijah and see how these are just kind of play a backdrop. Do you remember how Moses crosses the Red Sea? You remember that? Miraculous. You in? You with me? Yeah, we believe in that. <clears throat> and then do you remember how the people never had any needs again after that? And they all were in a good mood and just went to the promised land? I don't remember that either. That's not even in the veggie tale. No. Like Moses and God both have times where they have to talk the other one out of killing the people. How great must it have felt to be walking on dry land in the Red Sea? How helpless does it feel when everybody goes, so you brought us out here to die? Do you remember Elijah bringing down fire and the prophets of Baal and the whole thing? It's one of my favorite stories. I love what he says to the people. He says to the people, hey, how long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? One side of the fence or the other. You feel for Baal or for Yahweh? And I love their answer. Do you remember what it is? They don't say anything 
Oh, ain't that our culture? Hey, are you for God or are you for, you know, greed and power and whatever? And they're like, ah, I'm on the fence. <laughs> I haven't really decided. So, so, uh, so God sends down, uh, how awesome would that be? Like to actually bring down fire. <laughs> that would be so cool. And laps up all the water and the altar's gone and the meat's gone and the whole thing. And it's like God has proven himself more powerful than Baal and he's used Elijah to do it. Do you remember the next scene we see Elijah in? Where he's going, I'm all alone. Nobody loves me. I wish I was dead. He wants to not be alive. Man, we're just so human that there's going to be these seasons of, God, I totally see what you're doing. Thank you for using me. I volunteered in Awana, and I got to memorize John 3.16 with a kid, and that kid believes that he's living eternally if he trusts in Jesus now. Boom, that's the greatest thing. And then the next week you go, I volunteered in Awana, and some kid threw goldfish at me and told me I smell bad. Like, well, yeah, that sounds right. Welcome to ministry. But you gotta be in it. This is the plan, that we would use our spiritual gifts to get out there and get our, ha- our, our hands dirty, to get out there and serve and, and, and be in situations where we go, God, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, the funny thing is in both those stories, we know that Moses and Elijah had nothing to worry about. God's going to provide food and the water and water out there in the desert, Moses. Moses, there's going to be manna. When they complain about that, a whole bunch of birds are just going to fly in and be like, hey, what's for dinner? You don't have to worry. There's going to be water coming out of rocks. But does Moses know that? You look at Elijah and go, Elijah, you're not alone. Obadiah has 70 prophets over here in a cave. You're going to have like a great time telling, telling your story about the prophets of Baal. You're fine. God's with you. But Elijah doesn't feel that. And I I bring those up because this really is the backdrop for the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples are placed in a long line of people who saw God use them greatly and then kind of fell off a, a, a ledge of faith and ended up in a place very soon after that where they said, man, I have no idea what I'm doing. I wonder if, what's true on those hillsides, if, if that's true, you know, as we look at the, the apostles on that hillside too, and we go, silly apostles, Jesus is going to provide, just trust him. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to trust Jesus for other people? If somebody comes to you and goes, man, I'm just in a really hard time, I don't know how things are going to work, and I've got relational troubles, and I've got financial troubles, and I just, I just don't know how it's going to happen. Isn't it easy to go just trust God? Oh, God's the one who fed 5,000. He's got hill, cattle on a thousand hills, man. Have you noticed how easy it is for other people? And how for us, it's something we learn over a long period of faithfulness. The apostles have seen God use them to heal and preach, but what now? They're still learning to trust. They're still learning that they don't have to be the provider, that God is happy to provide. And I would just encourage us today to learn from them. 
Man, we'll talk about this as we go, but, but there's a whole culture out there that is starving for the truth. And they also have physical needs. There's physical needs that need to be met. And then there's this great spiritual need that needs to be met. And God has not called any of us to the ministry of sitting around. He has also not called any of us to the ministry of judgment. He has not called any any of us to the ministry of accusations. But rather, he has called us to feed them. Go feed them. What are the needs that need to be met? And how can we put ourselves in a position where we go, God, I don't know how this works. Just one lunch. Just reach in the bag one lunch at a time. See if God doesn't use us. So, next, this is a story about banquet and celebration and bread. This stands in a tradition of storytelling about banquets. Jesus makes banquets in strange places. Can I say that again? Jesus makes banquets in strange places. It's not only in the lavish, uh, like, hall in the middle of town that Jesus can throw a party, but Jesus can throw a party on a hillside with one, with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. The psalmist would testify that he prepares a banquet. He prepares a a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus tells great banquet stories. Do you remember as Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God at one point, he goes, look, it's like I threw a party for all of the important people and all of the important people had something more important to do. So I said, go and find people from the highways and byways. Go get people who never get invited to any parts. That's the people I want sitting at my table. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. The scene in heaven in Revelations is the marriage feast of the lamb. Three times a year, the, um, the uh, Jewish people were supposed to come to Jerusalem, but it was not a pilgrimage of fasting. They were feasts. This is the big idea. This miraculous moment out on the hillside is God's provision presented like a great party, not like a line at a soup kitchen. This is not a kingdom of lack, but a kingdom of plenty. Sitting in groups, eating. We'll do it on Wednesday night. Show up. Plenty of food. You have to clean up the extras. What do you think the mood was like out there holding miracle meals? This is joyful stuff. And miracle bread meant something, just like we talked about with miraculous healings last week and, the, and that those people, they got sick again. The healings were supposed to, um, supposed to point us to something more profound, that, that our souls can be healed, that we can have new life in Jesus. In the same way, these people are going to have a great time at this meal, but they're going to get hungry again. This is a physical miracle that points to the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God. Manna was not the point. The daily bread with the widow in Elijah's time, the bread was not the point. The bread is not the point of the feeding of the 5,000, but rather it points us to the spiritual provision that God has given us in his son Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Something that might challenge us as we read stories like this is that we live in a reality in this world where sometimes material needs aren't met. I mean, it's easy here in Seaside to talk about God will provide all your needs, but 
You don't have to go very far in the world to go. There are people that their needs just aren't, aren't met in a way that it would break our heart if our kids had to live that way, you know? What do you do with that? Christians are martyred. There's real suffering in the world. So let's not make the same mistake that the Pharisees did in John 9, I told you, or John 6. I told you a little of that story, but one of the most heartbreaking lines it, it, when John tells the story is he says, in the, uh, how's he say it? Um, in the meal, they saw, in the miracle, they saw only bread. Let's not be those who read these miracle stories and go, is this a, is this a way I too can have miraculous provision? Well, maybe. God's a loving Father. He's happy to provide. But rather, the point of this story is that on that hillside was God himself offering new life to anyone who would follow him. Of course, our God can supply our physical needs. But I think this is the point. If you think that's cool, you should see what he could do for your soul. He is enough. Ultimately and lastly, this is a story about the sufficiency of Jesus. We are trained from a very young age to not be satisfied, to want more, to need the next thing, to push, to grow, to need and want and achieve. We are not taught very much from a young age, about the sufficiency of Jesus. But there are 12 baskets full of bread at the end of this story. Remind me again, how many uh, disciples? How many apostles? Uh, that's pretty fun. So now, these guys have to have a headache. They have to be so exhausted. They've come back from this great healing ministry. Jesus, you're not going to believe it. Demons fly. Uh, demons leave us. And I healed, a, I healed a kid. And it was all great. This was all wonderful. And then all of a sudden, the panic of, Jesus, we can't feed these people. What should we do? And Jesus goes, you feed them. And they go, okay, we'll feed them. I don't know how to do that. And, and then to see Jesus miraculously uh, fill that need, and then all of them standing around with a basket of miracle bread. I don't have words deep enough to teach what they should have been learning. But it certainly is. When Jesus says, feed him, he'll provide the bread. Jesus is enough for the 12. Jesus was enough for Israel. How many baskets of bread again? 12? What's that always point us to? 12 tribes, this is always about Israel. Luke wants very clearly to tell you Jesus is the Savior who will be better than Moses, who will be better than Elijah, who will provide living bread for Israel. He is the Messiah. Jesus is sufficient for his people. And let me just talk for just 30 seconds about what that meant. It meant Rome didn't have to leave. Are you with me? It didn't have to be, since Jesus is enough, we're going to get our way and Rome's going to leave. It didn't mean that all of the physical needs of Israel were going to be solved. In fact, if that were true, we would have to say that the sufficiency of Jesus was not only in question, but is demonstrably not true. Because just 40 years after this scene, 
Jerusalem is razed. The temple is burned. There's no more Israel. What has to happen for Jesus to be enough for us? Does our social agenda have to be the dominant social agenda in order for Jesus to be sufficient? Does our political party have to be in power? Does our football team have to win? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I was feeling a little tension in the room. I felt like I had to tell a joke. One of my biggest frustrations is that I hear a lot of public Christians talking about like if Jesus is sufficient, then this, 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 this has to happen. Jesus is sufficient right now. And there's a starving world that needs bread and water. Yes, let's feed them physically. But along with that, needs this story of a God who provides. They didn't have to grow in power. They didn't have to overthrow Rome. They didn't have to overturn the priesthood and and make the Levitical priesthood pure again. They just had to follow Jesus because nobody goes away from Jesus unclean. Jesus was sufficient for the 12. Jesus is sufficient for Israel. Jesus is sufficient for the crowd. I wonder if when the 12 heard Jesus say, you give them something to eat, might have been tempting in my selfishness to hear like when, if I came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we got like 5,000 men, this might be 15,000 people. They're all sitting on this hill. They're starving. Everybody's hungry. What should we do? If Jesus just said, well, Grant, you feed them. I might be tempted to go, what are you like copping out on me here? Like, what do you mean I feed them? Like me do it by myself? Maybe it would be tempting to hear, like, fix it without my help. But maybe what they needed to learn is that their Savior was also the crowd's Savior. And there's a balance between, Jesus, you're their Savior. I'm not going to do anything. Or, oh, no, these people need a Savior. It better be me. There's a starving, hurting world out there. And they have a Savior. His name's Jesus. But Jesus is looking at us and saying, well, go feed them. There are people hurting. There are people hungry. There are orphans that need homes. There are neighbors that don't have enough. And their real need is that they need Jesus. But maybe before they can hear us talk about their spiritual need for Jesus, it'd be helpful if we gave them some bread. Nothing has to happen for Jesus to save us. Our friends, our neighbors, nothing has to happen for Jesus to be our provision, for us to celebrate him. He can prepare a feast for us even in the presence of our enemies. So Christians, it's a hungry world. Go feed them. What they need is salvation, but we might need to give them some bread in order to demonstrate God's goodness. Isn't that what this was? We might, be, we might need to look for appropriate ways to fill needs. You know, I, I know that this is dorky and obvious, but it, it just strikes me that for people who needed a meal, Jesus provided bread. 
he filled the need that was sitting there to be full, to be filled. He didn't have a conversation with the woman at the well where he was like, I know you don't have a husband. In fact, the man you live with is not your husband. You have seven husbands. Here's some bread. You know what I mean? She had a different need. In his story, in, the, in John 3 with Nicodemus, Nicodemus didn't say, how can I be born again? And Jesus said, here's some bread. Nicodemus didn't need bread. He needed something else. He didn't, Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, he didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've defrauded a bunch of people. And Jesus said, here's a sandwich. There's a different need. And I'm not trying to be silly. I'm trying to make the point that we have to find the things that people feel they need, the actual needs that are there in our community. And we have to fill those so we have a voice to tell them about Jesus without judgment, with love. Jesus is enough for the 12. He's sufficient for Israel. He's sufficient for the crowd. And he's sufficient for you and me. Look, I'll end with this. These are some things that I know to be true. First of all, God has called you to join him in the reconciling of the world to him. If you're a Christian, to be a believer in Jesus is to be on mission with Jesus. That nothing is clear in the scriptures. The second thing I know to be true is that God is sending us on mission with the weapon of love, grace, and forgiveness. If you feel like going to battle with judgment, hate, and fear, well, that's a different battle. Like You can fight it, but that's not the Jesus battle. Jesus is sending us out with love, grace, and forgiveness. The third thing I know to be true is that you will experience times of success and joy. People who are living for Jesus, they, get, they like getting around and telling stories about when they saw Jesus use them. You're going to have times like that. But also, something else I know that's true is that you will experience times of feeling like you can't do it at all. There's going to be times sitting on hillsides going, huh, what are we supposed to do now? But this also I know, that he will supply everything you need in every one of those seasons. Just put your hand in the bag and pull out one more Lunchable and see what happens next. Do you know the one starfish thing? Right? You guys all know that story. The guy, I don't know this, is, you guys could probably tell it better than I can, but the kid on the beach and a bunch of starfish have watched, washed up on the beach and this kid's throwing starfish back to the beach because he's going to save the starfish. And, and, um, and a man walks up and goes, hey kid, you're not going to save all these starfish. And he goes, no, but I could save this one, right? And there's something beautiful about that. But Jesus is sufficient for all the starfish. If you will just get on mission with Jesus tomorrow and let him use you tomorrow. Watch what happens the day after. Jesus is sufficient for your neighbors. Jesus is sufficient for you. However you feel like the disciples should feel, how should the disciples feel holding these bags of provision, these baskets of provision? How should they feel? Should they be charged up to be like, oh my gosh, I'll go wherever Jesus says. Should they be like, wow, why did I doubt Jesus? Should they say, next time Jesus says, feed them, I'm just going to take my five little loaves of bread. I'm going to go out there and feed them until it runs out. However they should feel, however you think they should serve in light of this experience, well, go and do likewise.